0: insight into all things information literacy in the sciences i'm your host virginia
1: and i'm your host eric
0: and today we're honoring the spooky season by first talking about the scariest topic of all time
1: the most scary
0: citing with a science focus we'll talk a bit about how to better understand the mechanics of citing why citations are such a thing and hopefully our insight will make it feel a little bit less ominous
1: And then later in the episode, we will share some of our favorite macabre library items, including special guests who will talk about one particularly notorious item in our collection, a book made from human flesh.
0: So gross, so disgusting, also a little bit fascinating. We'll also have another guest to share, get ready for it, a real-life library ghost story.
1: Love it. Sounds spooky indeed.
0: Right. Let's get into it. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to introduce you to a new member of our team. We're super excited that Heather has come to join our podcasting crew. Welcome, Heather.
2: Hi, thanks very much. Yeah, my name is Heather. Uh, My pronouns are she, her and hers, and I'm really excited to be here.
0: Now, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, I am a student doing my practicum through the School of Library and Information Science. And I have been invited as part of that to help out with kind of the behind the scenes of your cool new podcast.
0: Now, do you have a crazy fun fact about yourself or just a crazy fun fact in general that you'd like to share with us?
2: Yes, I do. Uh, I have two that I thought might be fun to share. First, fun fact is I am completely obsessed with knitting and crochet which anybody who knows me a little bit knows that about me I constantly it just makes me happy to have low in my hands as much as I can. But something you may not know is that I like knitting so much that when I'm on zoom calls if you can't see my hands there's a really good chance that I'm knitting because I can knit without looking. other fun fact that not very many people know about me is I have had an assortment of rodents for pets. I've had a hamster, a rat, and a pair of spiny mice.
0: Okay, the hamster I can get behind. (laughs) I love these fabulous intros and learning more about people on our podcast. So Heather, we are really excited to have you working with us. And I guess we should get back to our episode.
2: All right, sounds great. Thanks.
1: One thing we regularly talk to students about is citation, and they usually seem very stressed, very concerned, and worried about getting it done correctly.
0: Absolutely. Most class syllabi make it sound pretty scary. It's an all, if you don't cite correctly, it's plagiarism. You will completely fall apart, and you will fail absolutely everything in life. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's not great.
0: No, of course plagiarism isn't good, and citation is helpful. But it doesn't need to feel like you're standing at the edge of a great precipice.
1: And honestly, truly not. Citation is actually all about engaging in a scholarly conversation that is not limited to a linear timeline. I can read and talk about an idea from a very long ago, and I can share it with you so you can do the same. And we can keep talking about it, take the ideas in new directions and build off one another. It's not a perfect system, but that's a much better way to look at it. Right. So one of the biggest things is about ensuring others can find the source you talked about for themselves to keep that conversation going. If you follow that logic, you need to then provide the information that will make it possible for someone else to find that source. Most scholarly journals publish quarterly volumes or basically just a few times a year. So including the year it was published and the volume number just makes sense.
0: Exactly. It makes it quite easy to follow.
1: Yeah, exactly. However, if you think about something like a newspaper that publishes every single day, if I give you an author name in a year, would that make it easy to find?
0: Ah, no. That sounds like a needle in a haystack type situation. An author could publish many articles in the same newspaper, or on a similar topic even, every day.
1: Right? So then when citing a newspaper, it makes sense to include more information around the date, month day, year, especially since every day there could be a hundred articles in one newspaper.
0: Understanding how publishing works does help here and there, but just stopping to ask yourself, what would someone need to find this item I am talking about is a great personal citing guide.
1: Totally. Pretty much every citation style will want some kind of author name, date, title of the item, and source of information and how much detail you give around each of these elements will depend on the item itself and how to go about accessing it, like our newspaper example.
0: Speaking of examples, there are a lot of guidance out there. The library has created a very extensive guide for citation help. We'll have it linked in the show notes. You can download the PDF for the CSE style. For example, that's the Council of Science Editors, a typical science citation style, and then just keep the PDF open while you're writing your papers and refer to it as needed.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot online, too. Pretty much every academic institution has a guide to citing. So if you Google how to cite something really obscure, you'll likely get an answer. Just check where the information is coming from, of course. For example, if you see it's from McEwan University or U of C, that's probably pretty good. And maybe see if the same information is shared by multiple sources online.
0: Good points.
1: In the end, it's really about sharing and talking to people, which depending on who you are, isn't so scary.
0: Exactly. And of course, there are many places that you can turn to for help. We're here to help guide you at the library.
1: Though we're not here to do your citations for you, to be clear. It's a fuzzy line.
0: It gets tricky for sure. But there's not just the library. There's also the Center for Writers, or C4W, for help.
1: Well, hopefully citing makes a bit more sense now, and is at least a little less scary.
3: Fun fact. If you regularly see ghosts in your home, it might be a haunting or it could also be carbon monoxide poisoning, a common cause of supernatural sightings. Try cracking open a window the next time you see a ghost and always have a carbon monoxide detector in your home.
0: Let's start this off with a bang and talk about the infamous human flesh book at the library. We want to have a little bit of context if you haven't heard about this book at our library. And we have some fabulous colleagues from the Health Sciences Library, Liz and Dagmara. Welcome to both of you. Thank you,
4: Jenny. Thank you, Virginia.
0: So Liz and Dagmara, can you tell me when you first found out about the flesh book? And is that the official name?
4: All right. So I guess I'll start. This is Dagmara. The official name is not the flesh book. We just lovingly call it the skin or flesh book because it like tends to shock people. It's actual name. It's a long Latin name, but essentially we call it De Medicina. Um, And it's a book that is a copy of a first century text. So it's a 1722 version by a Roman encyclopedist named Celsus. So it's essentially a medical treatise, one of the oldest known, and it's part of a larger surviving volume um, on the history of medicine, pathology, diseases. There's a lot in there about plant cures used in early Rome, and it's one of the best sources on medical knowledge in the Roman world. So I found out about it when I first started working at the Scott Library back in 2007. Uh, And it was located downstairs in the Rawlinson Collection Room at the Scott Library, which no longer exists at the moment. Most of the um, materials have been taken into the Bruce Peel Special Collections. But I got a tour of that space. We had lots of rare books dating back to the 1500s and 1600s in there. And uh, of course it was brought out and, and showcased and I was told that it was made of human skin. There's a, there was a little note inside, a uh, handwritten note, I believe saying that it was bound in human skin. Liz, did you want to add your experiences with, with the book?
3: Yeah, my experience is very similar to yours because also like during a tour and I remember it being pulled out and, and talking about it at that time. The thing I think that stood out for me was just sort of like, it, it's not a book that has a lot of detail on the cover. It's really just, you know, a really, a vellum <laughs> cover. Like, it, so you don't, um, like, there's not a, there's no lettering. There's no title on the cover kind of thing. The cover is just very plain. Is there a reason we have this book? Dagmar and I were looking into the history of it, like, and when we got it. And we're actually not sure about that, There's some interviews about the Rawlinson collection done by some of the early people who worked on it. And there's no real good note on where that came from or why we have it.
4: So the a lot of the Rawlinson collection was given by the Mewburn family, which were a family of physicians in Alberta, and they had some rare books. So some of them were given by that family, but there's no indication they were given there. And oftentimes other professors would donate some of the rare books, medical books they had to the collection over time. Like that hasn't happened in a really long time. But that was my understanding previously, that it kind of was this collection that was haphazardly cobbled together.
3: Yeah. The Mewburn collection was the base of the Rawlinson collection, but then there was a lot of, and and when the library had more money, we were more active in collecting at certain times. The last few years, it's not. There's been very little, like we add a couple books a year maybe, but, you know, at different times in the past, there was a lot more heavily collecting done, but we, unfortunately, Dagmar and I don't know how it ended up in the collection.
4: And I think there are lots of materials where we We aren't totally sure how we got them. There's no book plate in them saying it was donated by anyone. That
0: is fair. And I mean, having a bit of a problematic book in the collection, you can't always sort of determine how it got there and really what you're going to do with it once it's there. So has the book been left in health sciences? But you were saying it's been moved to the
3: Bruce Peel, right?
4: So yeah, so it is in the Bruce Peel. Bruce Peel has more specialized conditions to house these materials, temperature controls, etc. It is still, you know, it's not first century BC but it's 1722 so it still is quite a bit of an older book. So a lot of those more fragile books have been moved there for the, for that reason.
3: Yeah, old books need to be kept at certain temperatures and humidities and the Rollinson room at the bottom of the Health Sciences library there was a number of things wrong with it. There was these like halogen lights that would get super hot in that room. And so because of that like that is really not ideal conditions. The con- the temperature should stay very stable when it comes to protecting rare books. And this room used to heat up multiple degrees just with the lights on.
0: Okay, so this book seems to cause a lot of excitement. So I have to ask is the book actually made of flesh?
4: I'll talk a little bit about just the practice of binding books in human skin, because it, there are books that are bound in human skin. There's not a lot of them. The practice is called anthropodermic biliopogy, and that's a mouthful. And it dates back to the 17th century, we think. A lot of them that have been found are about 1800s. There is a group of uh, researchers and scientists that are trying to investigate and find all of these books. It's called, they're called the Anthropo- Anthropodermic Book Project. So they've identified, I believe, 18 confirmed human skin bound books out of. 50 that have been purported to be human skin. And we were in contact with them, um, as well as some other services to do some testing on this book to see if it was human skin. And yeah, Liz, did you want to reveal the uh, secrets of the human skin book?
3: Yeah. So when it was tested, we were, you know, our, our, the chief librarian at the time it started to become quite concerned that, you know, if we have this book that's uh, has human remains as part of the book, that we had some, probably some ethical obligations towards this book. And we needed to really think about like how we were housing it, how we were showing it, all of those things. But of course, the first question was like, is it actually human skin? And they know that a lot of these books that have the reputation are not. And as you can see, it is really rare, like this project only identified 50 sort of thought to be, and they've tested 30 of them, which one of our books is one of the books that they've tested. And we are one of the 12 that have been shown to be animal leather instead. So it was not human skin. I mean, for better or for worse, right now, we don't have a problem that we have to sort out. So we were lying all that time. But you know, lying because I, like, who knows how that little written note got in the, in the book that said it was. It's kind of fascinating to think about that, but yeah, we are, it is not human skin. We do not have an example of anthropodermic bibliology in the library, and uh, we no longer have to worry about that in terms of, So what it is, is
4: sheepskin that has been identified and they used a technique called uh, peptide mass fingerprinting, where they took, we took very, very small samples of it. And what they do then is look at the collagen in those samples and and the variety of proteins in the collagen. So various combinations will, uh, are characteristic of different species of animals. So it, it was identified as sheep. So if it was identified as belonging to primate, since we're the closest cousins to primates, it, we could say that it was human skin, but it wasn't.
0: Oh, okay. I'm glad that creepy fact about the library has kind of been put to rest. And I want to just say that I have greatly appreciated learning more about our creepy book in the library. And I want to give a huge thank you to Dag, Mara, and Liz for coming on and chatting with us today about it.
3: You're welcome. You're very
0: welcome. Thank you. <laughs> There are a few other items we wanted to mention as well. Okay, Eric, have you heard about Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone by Riley Black?
1: No, I haven't. That's an amazing title. Uh, what's it about?
0: It's all about bones. Okay, from the book's abstract, Bridging the worlds of Paleontology, Anthropology, Medicine, and Forensic, Skeleton Keys eliminates the complex life of bones inside our bodies and out. The chapter names are what get to me. One is, the nearer the bone, the sweeter the meat. And a personal favourite, Bones of Contention.
1: Wow, I love that. I definitely need to check this out.
0: Just a quick note, the author's name is listed incorrectly in the catalogue. It should be Riley Black.
1: Got it. Super important to honour her real name. Another resource I wanted to note is the Gale Encyclopedia of the Unusual and the Unexplained. This three-volume set covers topics relating to magic, witchcraft, the supernatural, and other mysterious phenomenon. Never underestimate the power of a good encyclopedia.
0: So delightful. It's time for a quick break before things get a little more mysterious with a ghost story from Eric.
1: This is a ghost story it was told to me by colleagues of mine who heard it from colleagues of theirs a colleague in specific who we'll call a a used to work the late nights in the library and sometimes when they were on patrol they'd have to go upstairs to the closed floors in the early hours of the morning now the stacks have emergency lighting and they are perfectly safe but the shadows can still grow quite deep at two in the morning. Well up there, A swears that sometimes they would be on patrol and they would hear someone moving in the row beside them. They'd check and most times they would chalk the sound up to their imagination. But once, they say, they saw something. Once or twice. Now this is where accounts I've heard differ. Maybe they are both true, maybe not. But this is what I've heard. The first time A saw something, they came around the shelves to investigate the noise. And they saw her, just for a moment. Completely unremarkable, except that from the waist down, there was nothing but empty air. The second time, they heard footsteps again from the row beside them. The books are sometimes sparse on the lower shelves, so A knelt down to look through a gap in the literature. This time, they saw a pair of legs going up and up, but to no body attached at the hips. And the legs began moving the same direction as the body from the previous night had floated. So If you're up on one of those floors late at night and you hear sounds from between the rows beside you, maybe be polite and call out or introduce yourself and maybe let our ghost know that the rest of her body is probably just up or down the stairs.
0: Thanks for listening to Library Lab Notes with your hosts me, Virginia, and co-host Eric. Thanks to our production team, Heather, Jessica, and Lauren, for making this episode happen. And of course, thanks to our special guests, Liz and Dagmara. We appreciate you joining us. We hope citing makes more sense and is a little less scary after this episode, and you learned some new resources in the library to enjoy this October, or whenever you decide to listen to us. Next time, we'll be introducing you to some of our amazing colleagues to give you insight into the daily workings of an academic library. As always, you can head over to our webpage, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes.
1: That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.